Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Fat, Drunk, and Stupid. Rob here, and I'm so grateful that you're here to hang out. And I hope you uh, hope you hope you're doing well wherever you are and whatever it is you're doing. You know, the past couple weeks have been tumultuous. Would be a good word for it, and probably about a million other words to describe it. Um, a lot of different emotions, and uh, you know, I was thinking about what what this episode was going to be and i was thinking about what i could say what i could do to address kind of what's going on uh with the protests with the police situation in this country racism uh the, the flag controversy the confederacy all this kind of stuff because i feel like not that I want to make this into a, I don't want to be, you know, that guy who's like, you know, as a veteran, I think this, or as a police officer, I think this, because, you know, I mean, I was both, but, you know, it doesn't make me any more special than anybody else. But I do feel like I have unique experiences that I could maybe use to explain some things or maybe talk about some things or maybe shed some light on some things. And maybe just try to be helpful and offer some some ideas, you know, and things you can do within your own community, your own city, your own town, county, state, things like that. Um, there's uh, there, there's really, I think, a, if you have a platform of any type, I think this is the time to use it. And <clears throat> I saw after the day or two after George Floyd was murdered, I saw some of the other podcasts were uh, commenting on some of the posts from some of the the black creators of uh, uh, podcasts. And some of the other podcasts were asking, you know, we want to say something, but we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We don't, we, you know, we don't know what to, you know, and the overall advice that I saw was, you know, just, you know, use your platform, speak from the heart and be genuine about it. And I thought that was very sound advice. I thought that was great advice actually, because it sounds silly to, to kind of say that, but you know, with, with what's going on, you know, sometimes you just don't know what to say for me. I, I did, you know, I made some tweets about different things, about some of the things that was going on with the police, some of the things that were going on with the military, um, some of the things going on about like voting locally, things like that. And I, I was thinking about, and last week I actually almost did an episode twice, but I wasn't really sure how it was going to sound. And, and I said, well, you know what, when I do, and I thought to myself, when I do a podcast, I'm talking to friends of mine. Because if you're listening to this, then I consider you a friend. And, you know, we already get to sit here. We have a beverage. I have a beverage handy, of course. And we're all thinking about what can we do. And, and people are involved in different degrees of it. And, you know, some people have gone out to the protest. Some people have donated money, time, effort, blood, sweat, and tears, literally. And... 
everybody should be able to do their part, I think. And I think you should be able to do whatever it is that you can do. We were coming off of, what, three months of, two or three months of, of dealing with uh, coronavirus, really. People out of 40 million people out of work. People are, are fed up. They're tired. They're, you know, a lot of uncertainty. People getting laid off left and right. And then George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. And I remember reading the headline when it said, you know, unarmed black man, George Floyd killed by Minneapolis police. And my first assumption was it's probably a shooting because that's typically what it has been typically. And then I saw the video and (laughs) I was, uh, I was shocked for several reasons. Number one, it's not everyday people watch someone get killed. It's just not, not everybody has seen that before. And when you see a lot of these videos from a dash cam and a police car or a body cam or, you know, a a shaky cell phone video of a shooting or a police shooting where it's just a bang, bang, couple seconds thing and it's over. And there's been some videos over the years of like uh, standoffs, you know, hostage, hostage situations, active shooters, things like that. But this to me is, is different. It's different for a lot of reasons. I watched this video, George, George Floyd's video several times and I tweeted about it and I said, you know, it doesn't take a former police officer to look at this and say that it's disgusting because that's the human reaction and it should be. I talked to people who said I couldn't watch the whole video and I said, no, you should. You should watch the entire video and you should watch it more than once, actually, because this is the reality of what's happening. And when you watch that video and it makes you uncomfortable and it makes you squeamish and it makes you want to look away, think about what George Floyd is feeling when he's handcuffed flat on his face on the pavement and a police officer has a knee in his, in his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds and literally slowly chokes him to death. It should shock people. It really should. It should absolutely shock you. It should disgust you. It should enrage you. It should fucking piss you off as a matter of fact. And I was fucking pissed off and I still am. And this is part of the reason why I've kind of taken my time (laughs) (laughs) to record this because I didn't want to get all worked up into a rich lather and just, you know, yell and scream into the microphone. You guys probably wouldn't enjoy that. Maybe you would. I don't know. But I was embarrassed also for the profession of law enforcement, not only for this situation. There's been a bunch of other situations too. But just the, the one thing I kept, I kept focusing on was Derek Chauvin, the officer that had the knee on George Floyd's throat. 
just the way he just sat there and was looking right at the cell phone that was recording him. And he had such a nonchalant look on his face. And I've, and I've watched that several times trying to figure out what reason does he have to do that? And that, and that sounds probably like a dumb question because people obviously say, well, he, he was because George Floyd was black and that may be true. Well, George Floyd was black. We know that, but it may be true that he wanted to kill him because he was black. I think personally, I think he didn't care if George Floyd lived or died in that moment. I think what happened was that you have a police officer exerting his authority. He's got George Floyd on the road, handcuffed. He's got his knee on his neck and he's showing the world that he's conquered this guy. And if you watch the video, you see the, the, there was four officers total, obviously. And they, and you watch the whole thing from start to finish. And when it first starts and, and they're talking to, to George Floyd in, uh, in his, in his car and, and then they get him out and, and I could see by, if you watch George Floyd's, uh, body language, you know, it's like he's drunk and he's resisting, but he's not really. And I've dealt with a bunch of people like that, you know, where they're like, Hey, what are you doing, man? You know, don't be grabbing me like that. And I'm not going to go like a play by play kind of thing on here because I mean, it's flat out wrong and, and disgusting and gross and it's horrible. But this is just me talking about my thought process when I was trying to figure out what defense could could be given for this. And the only thing I can think of is I didn't intend to kill him. I was restraining him or keeping him from fighting or resisting or whatever. In police work, you deal with a bunch of different people and altered states of mind, drugs, alcohol, mental health, all kinds of things, or even people who just want to resist and get away and things like that. The golden rule is you put them on, you put them in cuffs and put them on their butts and you don't leave people laying on their stomachs like that. First of all, cause people have died just by laying on their stomachs with their hands behind their back because all their weight is on their chest and they can't breathe and they actually suffocate, especially bigger people. And to me, it was just so, it was, it was just so, so odd, you know, just the, the look on, on Chauvin's face and the entire situation, that whole scenario is just, it baffles me. They had George in the back of the police car at one point. They took him back. They took him out. All four of them held him down. And then Chauvin put his knee on his on his neck. And and I mentioned this because people have asked me, why would they take him out of the car? Well, there are certain situations where you would take someone out of the car once they've been handcuffed. Uh, if they're like beating their head against the window or if, or if they're trying to 
dig like something that they've got hidden in their pants or something like that. You know, you might want to try to get them out and see what, what they got going on. I arrested a guy one night that ate a bag of crack. Uh, when he got, before he got pulled over and he, you know, he had, he had a warrant. I arrested him and put him in the back of the car, searched him and we're going to leave. And, and, and he tells me he ate a bag of crack and he, and he doesn't want to die. So I, I drag him out of the car and I say drag because he was having some issues. He was sweating and foaming at the mouth and, and I called for a medic and, uh, you know, they had to take him to the hospital, pump his stomach out and all this kind of stuff. He lived. But, you know, I, I don't have those answers, really. I don't know. And <clears throat> that'll be up to when it goes to trial. And I hope it does go to a trial. And I hope that so- something is figured out as far as why, why it happened. I know that, you know, this gets talked about with the police, you know, police uh, killing unarmed black men and women and systematic racism. It's been around for a long time and it's, it's ugly and it's terrible. I can't sit here as a white person and, and you know, me, I'm saying that it's ugly and it's terrible. But I'm not someone, I'm not a black person. So I can't sit here and tell you about what it's like to be black because I don't know. I know what people say. I know what people have told me. And I believe them. And I think that's a part of this too is when you have conversations with with, with, with a, a black neighbor, friend, coworker, whatever the case may be, uh, a fellow podcast creator, a, a, a friend on Twitter, you know, you can't be dismissive and you have to, and, and, you, and you, but don't be afraid to engage and try to learn, educate, say, look, tell me about your experience. What happened? You know, I've, I saw a lot of that on Twitter where someone started a thread where it says, Hey, when's the first time that you realized you were, uh, that you, I guess, uh, I can't remember how they worded it, but the first time you experienced racism, basically. And read, read through those threads like that of, you know, black people who say, oh, I was five years old and, uh, you know, was called the N-word or was told that I would never be able to, you know, that uh, I was an inferior race and all this kind of stuff. And that's, it's crazy, but that's that's the reality. And it's hard to get people who aren't affected directly by something to get involved in it as deeply as you need them to be. But from what I've seen, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people out protesting. It's a great thing. It, it, it is, you know, the past, <laughs> the past four years in our country has not been, has not been the best for various reasons. And you hate to even have to go out in the streets and protest racism and take down statues of, of people who own slaves and mass murdered indigenous and native people. But if that's what it takes and that's what it takes and exercising your, your, your constitutional rights, that is what makes America great. Not slogans, 
not uh, hats, not fake patriotism, not standing on the bodies of veterans to push a political agenda. The Constitution, our rights. There are other countries where if you say something bad about the government, guess what? Your ass gets disappeared or thrown into a labor camp. And what we saw, what I've seen these past couple weeks, I've seen people peacefully protesting and I've seen the police show up dressed for uh, a riot. And a lot of them were dressed like they're like they were going to Fallujah. And assault peaceful protesters push down a 75 year old man. I mean, come on, give me a fucking break, man. And l- listen, I saw that and I, and, and I'm like, was just, I was just floored. I was fucking floored. And number one, with this open wound that we have in our country where the emphasis is on what the police do and what they don't do, police brutality, uh, the militarization of police. And a lot of these police departments these past two weeks, they just, I don't know, I can't explain it. It's like, hey, we have 10,000 people uh, protesting that we are militarized. Let's bring out our best tanks and let's dress up like we're universal soldier or some shit. Let's go out here and just uh, beat the shit out of people. It's crazy. And I'm not even talking about the, the looting and the, and, the, and the rioting. Because that that is actually a small portion of what you don't see on the news, which is, I mean, just uh, this weekend, there were hundred like 100,000 people in Seattle that walked for two miles, completely peaceful, not a police officer in sight. You go, you go look at some of these eyewitness accounts on Twitter. People actually there. Look at their videos. Look at their tweets. The... And they also said there was no uh, major media there to cover it because the media, you know, they pick and choose what they want, what they want you to see because they, they want to keep shit stirred. They want ratings and views and clicks and all this kind of stuff. But this movement is so widespread. I mean, it's all over the world. Countries all over the world are people, you know, with Black Lives Matter signs protesting. And I think it is... A lot of ways, it's very, I think it's very promising personally, but there's still a lot of work to do uh, for everybody. Unfortunately, you know, there are people who want to pursue their own personal agendas, who want to try to hijack a peaceful protest and a very noble cause and a really wonderful movement. And I've seen the videos of, of, uh, you know, black people in their own communities peacefully protesting and they're stopping these younger white kids from destroying things or trying to at least saying, please don't do that. Please don't do that. We're not, that's not what we're here to do. And the problem is when those things happen, obviously, uh, then everybody gets punished. Even if you're peacefully protesting for all day, when people start breaking windows and things like that, then the police are like, well, this is uh, no longer a lawful assembly. So we're just going to start pepper balling Mason and rubber bulleting people. And it just turns into 
it's just such a such a mess and you know i i saw some police departments that obviously didn't handle things that way uh which is good but it's almost like a lot of these police departments expected just thousands of people to just be ready to attack them that's what i think it is i think the response that a lot of these police departments had this past week or two has been out of fear. And I think it's out of fear because they felt that we're going to be outnumbered and all these people are going to want to attack us and hurt us. So zero tolerance, everybody load up your helmets, take your name tapes and your name tags off, cover your badge number and we're going to war. And that's the wrong answer. hundred percent. 100% wrong answer. The, in in that kind of mindset leads me to my next point. And and I, and I, and I want to, and this is something I really wanted to touch on. Police, police work in America has gotten so complicated for several reasons. One thing is, of course, now people, you know, there's people talking about defunding police. There's the abolish people, all kinds of things. I am not in the abolish camp, but I am in the defund, reform, rebuild camp. And I'll tell you why. The training, the, the, the training doctrine for a lot of police departments is turning police officers into warriors. And, and that's why they use those phrases. And then you see you know, the Punisher skull with the, and then the, the, the blue line flags and things like that. The, the thin blue line flag is not a fucking flag. Okay. It's worthless. It's absolutely worthless. It's not the flag. There's one flag for this country. And matter of fact, today is flag day. So there you go. But, and I'll talk about flags in a little bit, but that kind of mindset is so off base, it's so dangerous, and it's so wrong. And what happens in police academy is (laughs) you get exposed to this constant idea that at any given moment, someone could kill you. At any given moment, everybody you see wants to hurt you. And And I'll give you an example. I, I got out of the army in 07. I got a job as a police officer in my hometown. I wasn't really, didn't really want to be a police officer, but I needed a job and I had a, a, a one-year-old and a newborn. So I needed some decent money and I needed benefits. That was the biggest thing. Having been uh, infantry in the army, there's not a lot of things you can easily transition into from infantry. Uh, so they had an opening and I got hired. So, the police academy that I went to was uh, ran like a, it was ran like a, almost like a boot camp, basically. You had PT in, in the mornings. You wore, we wore these dark green military BDUs. Think like Fidel Castro, kind of OD green, plain green BDUs with boots and a hat and a cap. And you had to march around. I mean, I had, I had came out of the army and I was like, are these people, 
are these people serious? <laughs> you know, I mean, is this shit for real? I mean, not to say the job's not serious, but I mean, I was like, is this even necessary? And, and this academy was run by a very large police department in Virginia. Not the one that I worked for, but we used that one for like two years. And that was happened to be during the time I got hired. And so they were very, very kind of a wannabe basic training kind of attitude. And so I just kind of rolled with it, whatever, you know. And they show you videos repeatedly of police officers getting murdered over and over and over and over and over again. Police officers are getting run over by cars. Police officers are getting shot. Police officers are getting stabbed. Police officers getting set on fire, bitten. And, you know, uh, dispatch recordings of police officers calling for help. And they're screaming in the, in the radio and you hear gunshots. And then they hear them gurgling their blood. And uh, it says, you know, officer so-and-so choked on his own blood as he called for help. You know, but you get exposed to this. They play these videos over and over and over and over. Uh, before you start evac training, which is <clears throat> driving training, th there's a video called A Bullet Your Vest Can't Stop. And it's literally like three hours of police officers, highway patrol, and deputies getting run over by vehicles on the side of the road. And you think like... Holy shit, man. Seriously? You know? But that's the that's kind of the tone of the training is that everybody's out to out to get you. Everybody's out to kill you. Uh and then they take it a step a step further. Uh we would go do PT in the mornings. We'd usually go for a run or something. And they said you have to have your radio with you at all times because in the real world, uh you may be You'll find yourself at any given moment in a life or death situation where you have to call for help. So we're out there running with shorts and t-shirt and you're carrying your radio in your hand. And I just kept thinking, I don't, I think this is a little overboard. You know, I think this is a little, I think this is a little too fucking extreme. And we started with 20 people in the, in the academy class and finished with 10. Because some people, they, you know, people are like, Hey, I don't want to do this, you know, and there may be a good or bad thing, but it's hard to simulate in any kind of training the real world. It's very difficult. And in the army, we trained over and over and over thousands of hours of training, but we didn't train the way that I see it in police academies. You didn't train with dying in every single scenario. At the end of police academy, you go through what they call a hell week where it's a week of uh, practical scenarios that you have to do that have police officers there acting as the, you know, suspects or whoever. And it's a bunch of different situations. Pretty much every single one of them ends with the recruit getting killed. And you think about it and it's like, what, what is anybody learning from that? If you're a young police officer, or just a rookie police officer. But a lot of these folks, you know, a lot of these folks were like straight out of college, you know, kind of people. Because this is a pretty big department. So they recruit people straight out of college. So you're 21 years old and you're like, yeah, I'll go be a police officer. And then you're like, 
wow, everybody's out to kill me? Are you serious? And so then you create this, this sense of on edge and awareness all the time. And they teach you to be suspect of everybody. For example, they have one of the training scenarios was a shoplifting. And they had this, this old lady there. She was probably in her 80s, literally in her 80s. And they did this thing where you cuffed her, but she said she had a bad shoulder. And could she be cuffed in the front? So you cuff her in the front. And then she would reach in her purse and pull out a knife. And they would be like, if she wanted to stab you, she could have stabbed you. It doesn't matter how old someone is. Which again, is also true because there's another video they showed of this 70-some-year-old guy in Texas who shot and killed a Texas trooper. But it just... You don't have to push that that lethality. Is that a word? Lethality? You don't have to push that kind of deadly danger in every single scenario. But, you know, you you do a a scenario where it's like, okay, there's uh, someone caught a suspicious male in the parking lot. So you walk out there and there's a guy sitting on the curb and you go talk to him and you get his info. And... And, you know, you're standing there and the guy just jumps up, pulls a gun out of his uh, hoodie and just goes, bang, okay, you're dead. Now, granted, that's possible, certainly. But highly unlikely. And again, I'm not saying that that hasn't happened. You know, just last week there was a deputy, I think it was a deputy out in California that got ambushed. Uh, by the Air Force guy, uh, and that and that does happen, unfortunately. But you know, there was no other; they, they had no other way the scenario would work. So then, when you re, if you died, if you redid it, what you had to do was uh, you had to handcuff the guy and detain him for whatever reason. And I don't remember why. I think they, they said, oh, this business business after hours, so you could detain him for trespassing or something. So you cuffed him, then you could pat him down and find the gun. I don't know. But, you know, it's just that kind of thing. I'm not trying to lay all the I'm not trying to lay all the blame of what's going on in policing with on the training. I'm just saying that this that's a part of it. That's a piece of it. Plus the militarization. Okay. The change in the uniforms, the military style uniforms with um all the gear and bells and whistles. I saw some of these officers these past couple weeks, man. I didn't wear that much shit in Iraq, you know, and the military vehicles and, and, and the, the budgets for all this equipment and, and weapons and stuff. It's really, really, really out of hand. It, it really is. And when you, you know, when you wear a different outfit, you kind of act differently and feel differently, right? If you dress up in a suit and tie, or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, dress up to go out or something like that. You kind of feel a little differently, right? Or if you go into a big meeting or a big interview or something like that, you feel different. If you just wear like a t-shirt and sweatpants, you feel probably more relaxed or you feel different. Police officers feel differently. A lot of times when you put on a different kind of uniform, I know this sounds kind of silly, but my department I worked at in my hometown, when I first started there, wore just a regular police uniform, the, the dark blue, you know, shirt and pants. 
And then about uh, two years later, they got BDUs for everybody. Dark blue BDUs, military style. BDUs, just like I wore in the army, except they were dark blue. And so now you got, so, so now you have police officers walking around with dark blue military BDU uniforms with these black boots with the pants tucked in. And I'm like, this just seems odd. You know, it, it really, it, it just, it, it always felt weird to me. And it, it's kind of gone from there. And, and one issue I, I can tell you also that has gone into this kind of the militarization part, especially and kind of the warrior mentality has been after 9-11 happened. I know officers who worked, who were police officers before, during and after 9-11. And they said that that changed quite a bit because after 9-11, you started getting more of this. Well, at any given moment, there could be a terrorist attack and your local police department could be all of a sudden our frontline troops uh, duking it out with uh, the Taliban, you know, in downtown, you know, bumfuckville. And so you have these, uh, you have like a, a five-man sheriff's office that has like sniper rifles, uh, Kevlar, you know, M16s, grenade launchers. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. There, there was a, a place here in Missouri, a small town that had a, sh- a sheriff's office where they had two MRAPs. If you MRAP, if you don't know what MRAP is, look it up. It, it's a big armored vehicle used by the military. They had two of them, and when when that sheriff, when that the sheriff that that acquired them through the Department of Defense, he got got canned. The new sheriff came in, and his first duty was, he goes, "I'm getting rid of these damn things because we don't need them." First of all, it sends a bad message, and we don't need them. And those things happen. I worked for a department here in Missouri that was given a Humvee and 12 M16s. And the chief said, what the hell we need a Humvee for? And it came down through, it was, you know, equipment that had been used in Iraq or whatever. And it gets cycled off the line. It gets, it gets redistributed to police departments because the government has been buying all this stuff for the past 20 some years. And he sent it back. He's like, I don't want this. Give it to somebody else because we don't want it. We don't need it. Don't, you know, we're not going to have that. <clears throat> and he, he was an old school guy, that chief. And he was a really, really, really nice guy. Um, but he, he just didn't believe in that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think a lot of these police departments, uh, and I hate speaking in general terms, but a lot of these police departments, these guys were trying to live out these soldier fantasies. And it, and, in police work, it ain't it. If you want to live out a soldier fantasy, fucking sign up for the military and and go somewhere and do it. And you know, it, you know, it, it's just kind <laughs> of to me. It just I, I've been so uh, I've been thinking about this so much because there's so much about it that bothers me. I hate that. People go through the pain and the anguish and the suffering that they've gone through when you see someone like George Floyd being murdered. But my hope is that all of this won't be for nothing. And I hope that some good comes out of it, not only for citizens, 
but also whoever's left in police work. Uh, I am not, I'm not of the mind that all cops are bad, but I think the system, the court system, the police system needs a serious overhaul. And if it means stripping it down and then rebuilding it, that that's fine with me. And, and I mentioned the court system because I'll, <laughs> the local, the, the local jurisdiction has so much bearing on police departments. The police departments, a lot of times are looked at as a revenue generator for your jurisdiction. My hometown police department, for example, I worked in a town that's right on the border of Virginia, North Carolina, right off of interstate 95. And they have this program where you can go out and you can work as much overtime as you want, writing tickets on the interstate. As long as you average two tickets per hour, guys, we have guys working in patrol making 80, $90,000 a year. They were going out there writing tickets and they were making all this money. Well, the backside of that is the city is making like 2 million bucks a year off of this because every ticket is also court cost, which goes by the way, court costs are, are stupid. It was just really ridiculous. They raised the speed limit on 95 to, uh, from 65 to 70, <clears throat> but in Virginia, anything 80 and over is reckless driving. So if you're, if you're going 81 and a 70, you get stopped, you get a reckless driving ticket, which means you can't pay it. You have to come to court, which means if you live in another state, you have to come to court or hire an attorney. The fine is obviously increased for reckless driving. It carries, you know, insurance points and all this kind of shit. And it's just crazy. You know, it's crazy that a city would, would, would actually be okay with that, but it happens all the time. And the court systems, a lot of them are engineered to make money. Court cost being so high, you know, you get like a headlight ticket, right? <clears throat> Which is a stupid ticket by the way, but you come to court and you can say, Hey, your honor, here's my receipt for my headlight bulb. Uh, I replaced it. Okay. I'm dropping the ticket. Uh, you pay court cost. Well, court cost is like a, let's say 80 to hundred bucks in a lot of places. So for a $3 light bulb, you have to pay 80 bucks to the court. And I knew that as a police officer, <clears throat> I didn't write tickets for shit like that. And I'm not just saying that because I'm trying to, you know, win points from, from everybody. I'm just saying I didn't, I was never a big ticket person. Uh, the guy that trained me said a, a drunk monkey could write a ticket. That's not impressive. You know, go out here and work cases solve cases, you know, uh, that's real results, you know, because a lot of police work is is statistic driven. Uh, a lot of departments look at how many tickets you write as an indicator of productivity. And so you have, a, you have police officers who are conditioned to think that everybody's out to kill them being told to go out here and stop a bunch of cars and write a bunch of tickets and stop a bunch of people on the street too. That's another big thing. Some departments have, will say, you know, you have to make at least two, you know, uh, one contact per shift, a field contact is what they call it. And some departments have like this little notebook 
that they give you where you you contact people, talk to people out on the street, and you get their information. And I, I thought that was just the dumbest thing in the world, you know, because what happens is an officer's like, man, you know, Sarge is up my ass. I'm going to have to go out here and make these contacts. So then you're out here just stopping people. He said, hey, what's your name? What's your date of birth? What's your social? And people are like, fuck off, dude. I don't have time for this. And then, as you can probably assume, that creates a problem. DUIs, you know, there were DUI quotas that, that were found where uh, a different department said, you know, every officer has to have X amount of DUIs. So then you get a bunch of bogus cases and shit like that. And it just kind of a, it's a snowball effect, I think. When it comes to... What we talk about, you know, people have talked about the the killing of unarmed black men by police officers. I think it comes down to a couple things. I think it comes down to fear on the fear and conditioning. When you have a a white police officer and a say a, a black male, you have two people who have been conditioned to believe that both of them want to kill each other. The black man has seen other black men who look just like him killed for no reason at all. And police officers get told that this stuff happens. And then ironically enough, it doesn't really happen that often. Right. I know that. And and think a couple years back, when, when the media had, was saying there was a war on police. And you remember uh, Joe Biden was given a eulogy at a funeral for a Philadelphia police officer who was at GameStop buying his kid a birthday present and gets gets uh, murdered, gets executed, right? New York cop, the New York cop got killed sitting in his car. Dallas PD with the ambush and then they blew the guy up with the, uh, the bomb robot. And then down in Louisiana, was it Baton Rouge, I think maybe? Uh, New Orleans one, I can't remember where uh, some officers, one or two officers maybe were killed or something. You know, those things happened then, of course, but I think they happened as a result of uh, what happened in Ferguson and what's happened in other instances. The police, uh, you know, police, police should be held to a higher standard, period. And yeah, I mean, obviously police are humans and mistakes can be made. Your the amount of stuff that you see and deal with can affect you over time. And and I'm not making excuses. I'm not saying that, you know, because you saw a dead child that you went out and shot a black guy who was unarmed. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that mental health is, is a part of it that doesn't get addressed properly. And I hope that that's part of the change because it would be a change that would benefit everybody, the police officer and the citizen. I think that people, there are people who in police work for the wrong reasons. There are people who are bullies There are people who are, who are shitty fucking people. And yeah. and, And when you say good cops cover up for bad cops, then that good cop is now a bad cop. And I can't, and I can't disagree with that. I will tell you, uh, something real quick, you know, sometimes good cops do 
say, hey, this is what he did. And then nothing happens. Those things happen too. Um, a lot of good cop, well, you know, a lot of bad cops get promoted and they become bad supervisors. And this cycle kind of continues, you know, it, there's no easy way to explain it or there's no easy way to break it down. And it's just various reasons. Are there white supremacists in, in, in law enforcement? I'm sure there are. Yeah, I believe that. I've read about the FBI reports and I'm quite sure that, that that's true. Uh, I never met any personally, not that I know of, you know, I, I never met a police officer who said, Hey man, I'm a white supremacist. Uh, I burn crosses on the weekends. You know, you want to come over sometime. Ne- never saw that. Never heard that. I never saw anybody with a, like a Nazi tattoo or anything like that. Never. I, I never saw that personally, but I'm sure, I'm sure it exists, especially these bigger departments. I mean, all the, you know, I mean, you know, you got to think, I mean, the law of averages, all the police officers in the country, there's got to be a bunch that are just no good fucking people, right? And I think the biggest issue is accountability. Is because, and, and I've worked with guys who get away with things. And, and they start off getting away with little stuff, right? And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then departments get themselves into deep shit because this guy over here will will fuck up but they don't punish him but this guy over here fucks up and does the same thing and they punish him then there's a problem well why did you punish him not punish me you know uh you know why did he get suspended two days i got suspended for five and, and we did the same thing all this kind of stuff that stuff happens all the time you know um write-ups Obviously, some of it, some of it's horseshit, you know. I mean, I got suspended one time because a, a, a woman thought I didn't. Uh, oh, well, you know what? Fuck it. I'll tell the story. So, I was working here in in Missouri. Actually, I never got suspended. Seven years as a cop in Virginia, never got suspended. You know, never had any disciplinary issues, nothing like that. <clears throat> um, I was working here in Neo, in uh, Neosho, Missouri. And they had a, the, this thing called fall festival where they have down the square, there's like hay rides and there's uh, arts and crafts, you know, stuff like that. Typical, like, you know, town square fall festival, hokey stuff. So I get a call and they say a woman uh, has seen two, uh, a man and a woman in a vehicle arguing and they're and the man yelled at the woman. And she says where they are and all this kind of stuff. So I go over there. I see the vehicle that she described. I pull up behind it. I get out. And I hear this woman go, hey, there they are. There they are. And this woman's like waving her arms and pointing a grit like. And I said, okay. Yeah, I said, okay. All right. Thank you. You know, it was a lady who had called. And obviously I parked right behind these people. So I obviously know that this is the vehicle. So I walk up to the car and it's a man and a woman and they have a little baby in a car seat, probably maybe like a month, barely a month old. And long story short, they decided to come to the fall festival. By the time they got there, the baby had fallen asleep. The wife wanted to go to the festival. The husband says, no, the baby's asleep. I don't want to wake up the baby. Let's just go back home. And they got into an argument. 
And they said that, you know, with a newborn baby, uh, it's been rough because the baby doesn't sleep very well. Uh, they were both exhausted and tired and all this kind of stuff. I said, okay, listen, you know, uh, what I'll do is, uh, I'll get your IDs. I'll, I'll get your information down. I'll do an information report for a verbal, you know, we call it a verbal domestic. I said, but you know, per policy, we have to, we have to do a, a, a information report just to say that I was here and I'll talk to you. I didn't see any signs of an assault. Uh, nothing like that. So I get their information and I leave. I get their information, give their, their IDs back. I said, okay, you guys have a good day and I leave. And I noticed that that woman that called sat there the whole time and watched. And I had a feeling she probably was going to say something. Just had, she had that look about it, right? And she was a, a, a white woman. Uh, apparently, uh, she was, for the area, she was considered wealthy. She had like this, she owned like a real estate company or something. So when I come back to work the next day, I get called on the carpet and they say, well, um, you got a complaint. And I said, okay. And they said, and they told me what it was and they asked me what happened. And I told them and they said, well, that's pretty much what she said, but, uh, she wasn't, she thought you should have done more. So we told her we were going to suspend you. And I said, you, why? I said, why, why would you tell her that? I said, wait, why would you tell her you're going to suspend me? Basically to appease her. And they're like, well, you know, she's a, you know, she's kind of in high standing in the community. And and she, and I said, why does that even matter? Why does it matter what standing she is in the community when she's obviously, I followed policy. I didn't do anything wrong, but she feels like in her opinion, I didn't do enough, you know? And so anyway, (laughs) long story short, they ended up suspending me. They let me read her handwritten uh, complaint. And at the bottom, it's she said that I was flippant and she misspelled flippant. And she, there was two P's in flippant. She put one of them in there. And so I read <laughs> I read the report and the lieutenant says, well, uh, you have anything to say about that? I said, yeah, she misspelled flippant. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, we're definitely suspending you for, you know, for a day. I said, okay. So I got suspended for a day without pay. And, and that's kind of at that point I was like, you know what? I don't think I want to do this anymore. You know, because I was already on the fence anyway. I was looking to get out, but, uh, you know, it's just that kind of stuff is annoying. And, and when you feel like you've, you know, you're getting hosed over just for them to appease this woman who they feel is in high standing in the community. But that goes back to what I was going to say about, you know, socioeconomic status. And I think what is a big part of this protest as well, not only racism, but the court system and the fact that if you're lower on the socioeconomic scale, you feel like you don't matter as much. Your opinion's not valued. Your voice isn't valued. You get thrown in jail. Nobody's going to speak up for you. Nobody's going to help you. And then you see people who CEOs, of these companies who rob people of millions of dollars and they walk away scot-free without even a day in jail. And then you have people sitting in prison for a year, two, three, five years for, uh, marijuana or for something that, you know, something that, you know, the sentence is way, 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 you know, disproportionate to someone else, 
You know, like the Brock Turner case, right? Preppy white kid rapes a girl, leaves her behind a dumpster. The judge says, I don't want to ruin his life. He doesn't get any jail time at all. So it's no surprise that people are pissed and upset and they should be. And so, like I said, I hope, I hope out of all this, I hope something comes from it. You know, um, part, part of this, what we've seen too, (laughs) has been the, which I think is kind of funny, has been the, uh, the statues being taken down. My favorite was the one, uh, in Richmond, Virginia, they took down the Christopher Columbus status and they threw him in the water. And someone was like, oh, he tripped and fell. He just discovered this lake and stuff like that. And I've been to that park a bunch of times. And the Christopher Columbus thing has got to go. I mean, it's just got to go. It, it really does. I mean, if, if, if you're anybody who reveres Christopher Columbus in any reason, you should go read, read a book and see how much of a dick he was. How the, his own, he actually got his, he was a governor. He was made governor and they took that away and threw him in prison because he was torturing people, cutting off uh, people's, you know, ears and, and shit like that. You, you could also, I mean, and you could also say that without him, uh, getting lost and, and, and stumbling upon America, that we wouldn't have the civilization that we do now. And I don't know if that's for better or worse. Uh, but you know, certainly, you know, the, the expansion of the world, you know, was a big part of that. It was a big part of him finding America. But what happened to the 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 natives, Native Americans, and indigenous people, and all that? I mean, that's just it's terrible. It's horrible, and it's something that you don't really learn about in school as a kid. You learn about later that how you know how awful some of this shit was that went on, and how these you know these Indian tribes across America were wiped out. Uh, either by disease or hunted down and killed or, or, you know, their food sources and things were killed and taken away. So then they literally starved it. You know, nobody's erasing history by taking down these statues. The history is still there. It's still there in spoken word. It's still there in books. Statues, a statue is, is meant to commemorate something. And we don't need to commemorate these people. We don't. Nobody, and I've heard someone say, well, they're, they're, people are trying to rewrite history. You can't rewrite history. History is history. And what we're trying to do, I think, is we're trying to take down these reminders that are so blatant in your face that people have to drive by and see every day. Richmond, especially, is is a place that is so conflicted because, you know, it was the capital of the Confederacy. And, but there's also a, so much rich black history there. You know, uh, Petersburg is not far away. You know, with underground railroad went through there and there's battlefields everywhere. Richmond has, uh, you know, slave cemeteries. There's, uh, the slavery museum is there. Then you have the museum of the Confederacy. And then, you know, it's, it's such an odd clash, but the thing is though, it doesn't have to be that way. We can have the history. By the way, there's a Holocaust museum there in Richmond, too, if you've never been. It is, it is, man, it is a sobering experience. And it's free, too. A lot of cool stuff like that in Richmond to go see. And a lot of great history. And it shouldn't be, the history is still there. You know, the Confederacy was what it was. They seceded from, uh, from America because they wanted to keep slaves. And... 
did everybody who fought for the Confederacy have slaves? No. Most, a lot of the actual soldiers were poor people. But again, political agendas were at play. And people pushing political agendas send young men to die. And a lot of men died on both sides. And later on, we had these statues put up at various times and places to commemorate some of these people. And as we educate ourselves and learn, and we, and, and, and we figure out, hey, wait, maybe we shouldn't have a statue for this person. In a museum somewhere? Sure. But out here on, on public land, out here in the middle of the street, maybe not. And Richmond, you know, that, that big statue of Robert E. Lee on his horse, that has become synonymous with Richmond. That's, you know, I, I think, I don't, I don't know if they still do, but I mean, it was on like their website. It was on like their brochures to come visit Richmond, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, there's, uh, you know, old uh, Civil War prison was a Brown, Brown Island, I think, right there on the James River. There were some buildings and things are still there. You can go see that stuff, go to the battlefields and things like that. That's okay. You know, I mean, I think that's okay. That is history and that's there. But extravagant, you know, co- physical commemorations of these people and things like that, I don't think so. You know, I think it needs to go. Uh, the Confederate flag is also another hot button issue. And the, the, the bumper sticker slogan from the South is it's heritage, not hate. And if you live in the Southeast, you probably have seen that bumper sticker before. When I grew up, um, for example, the Dukes of Hazard was very popular on TV and they had the General Lee, the car, and they had the, the Confederate flag painted on the roof. And, you know, it was in music, it was in imagery, it was on uh, clothes, people had t-shirts and, and, you know, women had bikinis with it on and guys had, you know, trucks with, you know, had Confederate flags on the trucks and things like that. And it was in names, you know, names of, of bands and, and music and movies and, and things like that. But it's okay to move forward and learn. And it's okay to be uncomfortable with the process. Because I think if you're uncomfortable, but you learn something, then that's growth, right? It's the most important lessons in life are the ones that are that, that come at the highest cost, I think. They're, they're, they're the hardest things that you learn. You know, and I think it's a lack of empathy. There's a loss of principles. And I think that it's with, with what we have with political agendas, there's this identity thing where everybody has to have a flag or a symbol or something to cling to. Right. And, you know, if you want to wave a flag, wave the American flag, you know, don't don't wave the flag of the Confederacy because if you hold that flag with any regard, then you're a fucking idiot. I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. I know it's not very eloquent, and I apologize for the language in this in this episode. Uh, but I'm I'm not really uh, in the sugarcoat kind of mood. I just wanted to flat out say it. It's just stupid. It's dumb. And I know. I mean, and a lot of people grew up in the South and grew up revering the Confederate generals and revering the Confederate flag. And it was kind of a part of life. But as you get older, you think, Oh wait, people find this offensive and people don't look at this the same way I do. And I really need to kind of reevaluate. And I'm not saying in every situation, just because someone doesn't agree 
It doesn't mean they're automatically right. What I mean is that as a country, we need to move past it. We need to move on, move past it. I saw that NASCAR banned it from there, um, from being displayed at the racetracks. And people were, some people, there's one guy, was it Ray, what's his name? Ray Carcharelli or something? He's a, he's a, he races in the truck series. And he said he was quitting because of the Confederate flag thing. And what does that have to do with racing? You know, it doesn't change the racing. It doesn't change the sport. Yes, the sport was born in North Carolina. That's where stock car racing was born. You had, you know, the infield at Talladega, Alabama, even the most recent races, you see Confederate flags out there and at some other places too, Dalton, South Carolina, uh, you know, back in the, watch those races from the eighties, man, it's Confederate flags all over the place, but now that's not acceptable. We're not doing that anymore. So fucking stop, cut it out. There's a lot of shit we don't do anymore. So cut it out, right? Move on and change and learn. This is a time for you to be on the right side of history. This is a time for you to say, you know what? I remember when that happened back in 2020, and this is what I did, and th- these are the conversations that I had. And it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to learn. I've learned some stuff these past couple of weeks. I have, and I'm still learning. And, you know, I think we just have to have to try to keep the conversation going. And I'm and I'm so proud of the people out protesting. Because they've defeated the 48-hour news cycle. Most things have a 48-hour news cycle. I don't know if you people realize this, but most things hang in the news about two days and then it's gone. And we've wanted something else. But keeping it in the news, and it, the news coverage has been dropping off. Uh, people have commented about that. And, and listen, the COVID, I mean, COVID cases are spiking too. So that's also important. I mean, that's not something we can't look past, uh, honestly. Um, but... Keeping the conversation going, putting pressure on people who who have the power to change things, businesses, companies, uh, your local leaders, city council members, prosecutors, judges. You know, when you vote, keep those people in mind. If they're not doing what they're supposed to do and they're not serving the best interests of the people, then vote their ass out. And then, of course, in November is the big one. And I'm not here to tell you which way to vote. You just need to be, you know, I think we need to have an, an informed electorate, which means that, you know, if you're going to vote, don't just vote down party line. Vote for the person that you want to be in that position. And that goes for any election, okay? A lot of people, you know, have always gone down, and if they have an R by, by their name, they vote for them, or a D by their name, they vote for them. And we've seen, you know, and there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, uh, a lot of these cities that we've seen now who've, who've had real issues with these, with these protests and riots, a lot of them are, are run by Democrats. And a lot of people are like, hey, wait, these people ain't, ain't cutting it. Time for them to go and find someone else to, to put in there. I'm not saying that's always the case. But just educate, inform yourself, and organize and spread the word to others and talk to other people, you know. And be informed on the issues and try to make those impacts at the local level. Uh, you'd be surprised how much of a change you can make at a local level uh, with that kind of engagement. So to wrap this up, I uh, wanted to tell a little bit of a, a little story that you probably have heard before. 
And uh, since today is Flag Day, and there's been so much talk about the the, uh, the Confederate flag and the Civil War and things like that, and I wanted to talk about a guy who did something extraordinary uh, back on July 18th, 1863. His name is William Harvey Carney. Now, William Harvey Carney was born in Norfolk, Virginia. He was born a slave. His family was brought to Virginia as slaves. He escaped slavery through the Underground Railroad and, and joined his father in Massachusetts. The rest of his family was dead or uh, sold off or whatever. And he joined the 54th uh, Massachusetts uh, Infantry, which if you've seen the movie Glory, uh, then you know what I'm talking about, uh, which is a very good movie. Morgan Freeman, Denzel Washington, Matthew Broderick. The 54th uh, was one of the, was the second uh, African-American, all African-American Civil War unit after the, there was one in Kansas, I believe, right before that. What happened was, they assaulted uh, Fort Wagner in South Carolina. It was a Confederate base. And it was the second battle, actually. And it happened, like I said, on Jul- July 18th, 1863. And the 54th was commanded by a guy named Colonel Robert Shaw. And he was born into a, a Boston family who were, uh, they were abolitionists for slavery. And so he, he took command of the 54th. And he fought for pay equality for black soldiers. And he also, uh, he and other white soldiers uh, wouldn't take more pay than, than the black soldiers until the, the, the black soldiers had pay equality and things like that. So even back then, 1863, you know, you had people trying to make a difference, you know, trying tr- trying to fight for equality, even back then, obviously. And, and. And with this, I mean, this is this is a such a neat story because think about the fact that William Harvey Carney was born a slave, and he's fighting against the people who want to keep him a slave, the people who want to keep him and everybody in that unit a slave, the people who are responsible for selling off his family, the people who are responsible for killing his family members. And so that he's at this battle at Fort Wagner, and Fort Wagner was this—it was a fort, and it was a fort in South Fort. Oh, it's a fort, obviously. It was a fort in South Carolina. And if you ever been to South Carolina, uh, it's very sandy, you know. And they have the, the beautiful palmetto trees and things like that. And this is out out on the coast, and so there's also marshland out there, and there's sand, and this thing is fortified like nobody's business. And they have several cannons. They have a howitzer. And so the 54th is assaulting this fort and, and assaulting, uh, you know, a place that's, uh, that's dug in and well fortified is very, very, very difficult. And you can only imagine 1863, July in South Carolina in 1863, this had to be absolutely miserable. So William Carney sees the color guard get killed. And the color guard are the guys who carry the flags into battle, carry the American flag and the unit flag. So he runs up and he gets the flag from the color sergeant. And then he keeps charging forward with his unit. 
and he gets shot, I think, three or four times. The Union Army has to retreat, so he retreats back with them. And he gets shot, you know, he gets shot charging forward and he gets shot coming back. So he's wounded. He's he's bleeding. He's, you know, bleeding. He's, you know, trying to make it back to, to his line. And he's got the, the American flag. And he gets back with the flag. And he says, boys, I only did my duty. The old flag never touched the ground. And... I've read that before and I've read his story several times before, but for some reason that popped in my head this week. And, uh, in 1900, uh, William Carney was awarded the medal of honor and he and other, uh, black soldiers from that time were, were awarded the medal of honor. But since his action took place before all the others, he actually technically is the first, uh, first uh, black man to ever get the Medal of Honor. And he went to live on um, and be a, uh, I think he worked for the Postal Service. And then, unfortunately, he was killed in an elevator accident. But uh, in Bedford, I think it's Bedford, Massachusetts, if someone is from there or near there, they have a couple things named after him. There's a mural of the unit uh, there in, in Bedford, I believe. And it's just a fascinating story because you think about that he, this guy risked his life just so the American flag wouldn't touch the ground. That's how much he loved this country. And a guy who was born a slave, born into slavery, whose family had been killed or sold, I mean, it's really hard to wrap, wrap your head around it. And, you know, having had, having have done two tours in Iraq and having been in situations where bullets are in the air, I can only imagine what this was like in 1863. I have no idea. I mean, it, it is just, it had to have been pure, absolute hell. But I think about I, th I think about him and I think about what must have been going through his mind. And the only thing that was going through his mind apparently was he couldn't stand to know that the flag touched the ground and he never let it hit the ground. And this guy took four or five bullets to make sure that it didn't. And I think one of the main reasons why I want to talk about that is the fact that people who feel so emotional and, and angry about what's going on in our country. And when they, when they, when people are so adamant about protesting and about making changes, it's because I believe it's because you love this country and you want to make it better. And, and you want it, you, you want, you want the country, you want it to be what you believe it could be. That's what I think. There's a lot of things wrong with America, but I think a majority of people are good people and I think a majority of people care and, and they want things to be better. They do. Sometimes that takes 
buildings being burned. Sometimes that takes police cars being flipped over. Sometimes that takes uncomfortable conversations with friends of yours, family members. Sometimes that takes hurt feelings. Sometimes that takes soul searching, listening, reading, watching, informing yourself, whatever you have to do. We owe it to men like William Harvey Carney. And we owe it to our future generations as well. There are good people and there are bad people, regardless of, of race, religion, creed, color, whatever. And the good people are the ones who are trying to do good things. And it's up to other good citizens who want to help their neighbor, help their friend, share in their pain, share in their struggle, and regain some empathy that we, that that gets lost, that has been lost over time. And I believe that that can happen, and I and I hope that it can. And I, but I think it comes down to individual effort, and surrounding yourself with people who you can talk to, people who you can share your experiences with, and people who believe you, and people who uh, say, hey. You know, I'm here for you. Uh, let's go do this. Let's donate to this. Let's, uh, you know, let's get the word out. You know, let, let's get some conversations going. Let's figure something out. Let's go to our local police department and see and talk to them and, and see and see what, what their policies are. Let's see what if they, you know, let's start a community review, a community review board uh, with the police department if we can get these things going. And, and listen, I, I'm not here to, to excuse you know, I don't want anybody to listen to this and think that I'm excusing any activities from the police department that any police that I've seen macing pepper spraying fucking rubber bulleting peaceful protesters and, and arresting the media is absolutely inexcusable. And America has failed twice in the past couple months handling the coronavirus. As I said on Twitter the other night has been the clusterfucks of all clusterfucks. And then when the microscope is on the American law enforcement community, it completely failed because every camera in the world was on these streets in this country. And you know what they saw? They saw peaceful protesters getting abused, assaulted, pepper sprayed, rubber bullets, people losing eyes, people getting hurt. And it's senseless. It's absolutely senseless. And as I said, I'm not on the abolish police wagon, but I think policing as it stands needs to go and needs something else needs to be there. And I don't know about the, like this community based thing. I'm not sure, you know, that's more, you know, I do believe that police policing needs to get back to community policing. And an important part of it is I think that the scope of what police do in this country needs to be reduced. A majority of police calls are, they shouldn't involve a police officer. Most of them are bullshit, to be quite honest with you. Because you answer calls like, my neighbor cut his grass and some of his grass clippings landed on my car and I want to charge him with destruction of property. That's a real call that I went on. This guy called 911 for that. 
and I have to explain to him it's not a crime. He looks at me and tells me that he, I don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm standing there looking at this dude. I'm like, are you serious, man? You know, uh, it's the grass clippings, you know. You have to be a mediator. You're expected to be a child psychologist. You're expected to be a marriage counselor. You're expected to be a frontline soldier. All this kind of stuff. And I agree. Part of stripping it down and and reforming, uh, rebuilding, defunding, demilitarizing, that's all a part of that. Let's take police back to what it should be, which is community service, customer service. Get it back to positive engagements, not just engage with people in a bad way, not be out to get to people all the time. Because a lot of times, and what I saw was with local police, they would have either one or two attitudes. Well, one attitude is, well, everybody hates us, so... I'm not going to do shit. The other attitude is everybody hates us. So I'm just going to get really, I'm just going to be aggressive and I'm just going to yell at people and, and beat the shit out of people all the time because I don't care. And both of them are dangerous. Both of them are detrimental to trust with the community. Both of them are (laughs) problematic to say the least, but both of them come, both of them end up with, a lack of empathy and an I don't care attitude. And the war on drugs has been one of the worst things put on law enforcement uh, in the history of law enforcement. Because when you use the, the word war, which started in the 80s, then automatically you think of a, a, a one side versus the other. That's where you get the us versus them. And that's kind of where it starts. And then it goes, then it goes from there. Then it's, War on drugs, then it's terrorism, then it's, uh, you know, gangs out shooting police officers. Then there's, uh, you know, the Antifa is going to, is going to get you or the outlaw biker. I remember two or three times when I was a cop, we would get a bulletin saying that, uh, outlaw bikers on Halloween are out, uh, hunting police officers. I've never, never, that never, never happened. You know, it just, I don't know where this shit comes from. Just like this Antifa thing. We saw, and I know I'm still talking and I apologize, but this Antifa thing, even here where I live in Joplin, Missouri, there was a, there's a guy who has a news website that posted pictures of a business on main street that was boarding up its windows. And he said, local businesses preparing for riots from Antifa. People saw that on Facebook and Facebook is like an echo chamber of just fucking morons. Right. And, and, so people were just, you know, oh, uh, Antifa's coming, and, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, and I was talking to somebody about it, and I said, Antifa, Antifa's not coming here. Are you serious? That's so stupid. I said, have you not seen in the news where every city is supposed to have Antifa being, protesters being bust in, and nothing ever happened? Nothing. I'm not saying that Antifa doesn't exist. I'm sure it does, but not on the scale that, that we, that we're being told and not on the scale that people believe. I mean, there were business owners here in Joplin who spent the whole weekend at their businesses. 
because and boarded up their windows because they believed it and they and they were like, hey, we're gonna there's gonna be riots and buildings are gonna burn, all this kind of stuff. Nothing happened. But that's part of the fear conditioning that happens, either through the media or you know, through movies or television or you know, social media is a big one. I mean, there's so much. I mean, I mean, they were saying the Chicago Zoo got broken into, and there were video. Someone posting these like old videos of of a hippo walking through the street, and then you go to the Twitter, the Lincoln Park Zoo Twitter, and they're like, uh, "So nobody broke in here. Everything's fine." So I retweet. You know, I retweeted it because I'm like, "Well, hey, in case anybody's wondering, that's total horseshit." But. You know, it's just a lot of misinformation out there. So I would encourage you to, uh, you know, read, listen, talk to people, you know, go directly to the source if you can. And, you know, if things are happening in your, in your own town, go out and go out and look at it. I mean, of course, be safe, but go out and take a look at it and see what's going on for yourself. And then tell other people and say, hey, look, there's good stuff happening here. There's, there's thousands of people peacefully walking through the streets protesting and supporting Black Lives Matter and protesting racism and police brutality and, and all this kind of stuff. And the news isn't covering it because people aren't breaking windows and burning stuff. And that's a shame. That's a shame that, that that's the only time it really gets attention. And, you know, so finally, you know, I could go on talking about this for a long time. But I'm not, and I, and I hope you stuck with me. I really appreciate it. I really do. Uh, this was kind of a departure from from my usual uh, material, obviously. But I felt compelled to talk about this kind of stuff. Um, if anybody has any questions or wants to talk to me about anything further, uh, I'm on Twitter at FDS Podcast Seven. Also, you can email FDS Podcast Seven at gmail.com. And uh, I'm always open. You can drop me a DM if you want to talk. You know, uh, and and I'm and and you know, I feel compelled to keep keep tweeting stuff about it too, as I see it, and offer my opinion, offer my 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 point of view, and engage with other people too. So, but it feels good to get back to the podcast. I have a nice new setup here. I've got a laptop now. I've got a boom arm and, a, and for my microphone. So that's that's cool. I feel like a I feel like a real podcaster, kind of sort of. But anyway, I, I thank you guys for listening. I thank you for the support so much. Uh, you, you know, you listen to the episode, you know, you know, feel free to, you know, drop a comment and give some feedback or ask for anything that I've said or, or if you, you know, if you've anything I've said that you think, you know, you may have misinterpreted or, or you think, you know, it's taken the wrong way, please let me know. Okay. Uh, and I, this is a lot of stuff to try to cover in, in a pod. I tried to keep it about an hour, but I did not, was not successful. But anyway, I'm back into it. And, uh, you know, uh, just everybody just, you know, take care of themselves. Let's keep the conversation going. And uh, let's say everybody just, just, uh, just stay working. Okay. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm.